I'm Kat Walker. I'm Lynn McPherson. And where did you say you were from again? Maryland. I'm from Maryland too. Shut up. What do you do there? I'm a pharmacist. <gasps> Shut up. I am at the front door. I'm you are too? We have a kind of a lot in common, I think. We could be BFF here. I think we could. Let's get to know each other a little bit more. Let's maybe do this, this. Maybe this will work out into something serious. Okay. Let's see. We also know that, uh, well, we have nothing to disclose. We'll move past that. Except we're crazy, but well, yeah, that, Maybe that's a disclosure. But we also know that there, there are people looking for people just like us. So we figure we might as well help them with some good pharmacy pickup lines so that maybe you can find a cute little pharmacist, too. One of the ones you can say is, are you a box of BD needles? Because you are ultra fine. That's one you could use. Oh, girl, you were so expensive. My insurance was requiring a prior authorization before our first date. <laughs> Okay, this one is my favorite. Well, aren't you a sight for psoriasis? Baby, I'm like a favorite. I can decrease your odds of nightmares, but you still may have strong, vivid dreams about me. A very common side effect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are just too much. That's fun. So what's the purpose? What are we doing here today? We are going to speed date through a bunch of tips, and you thought we talked fast before. No, no, no. Watch. Now we're going to talk fast. Now we're going. Take good notes. The slides are there. Um, so we're going to go through some speed dating tips, hoping you will fall deeply in love with some of them that you're compatible with. We'll see how we do. Um, so the first one is uh, we had a Parkinson's patient, an NPO, and we were having a little bit of a challenge um, and thinking, okay, they, can't, they couldn't take oral, so what, what are we going to do? They had an NJ tube, so it wasn't that easy to get something down there. And guess what the nurse said? Guess what? And we said, we're worried in J tube, it's so small, it could easily get clogged. And she's like, that's okay. You can just put Coke down the NJ tube. It's not a big deal. Not a big, not a big deal, we said. That's a nice little trick, or is it? So how many of you have heard this before? You can put Coke down the tubes. Clear it right up. Well, you got to be careful with that, right? So Coke, um, when you think about it, is sticky and sweet, right? And it can also um, kind of denature the proteins because of its acidic nature, and that can cause even more of a clog. So you've really got to be careful here. So... Um, the type of tube's important, but when a, you get a clog in one of these tubes, um, it can really lead to a lot of nursing time. Like, this is not a good look. So Coke can actually make it clog more than not. So you want to use um, sterile water um, from a freshly opened container if they're, if they're immunocompromised. But tap water is fine. If they're not immunocompromised, water is the best. So you want to flush before and after, and that's good. So when you think about Coke, um, you can move it if you want. That'd be good. So when you think about Coke, you want to say no to that Coke. So look at the acidic pH there. That's where that denatures the protein. Now, I'm a Mountain Dew fan, so if you can click twice. Um, and when you look at Cokes down there and look at Mountain Dew, it's like not so great either. So I can't use Mountain Dew to flush tubes either. So the sticky part and the acidic nature, if someone brings that up to you, say, no, 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 water it is. So They use this with um, trucks to clean the carburetor. They dump a Coke over it. It doesn't sound good for your stomach, does it? Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably not the best time to yeah, be my drinking. My body's a temple. I got teeth, so there. <laughs> That's right. So one thing that you can use to un um, unclog enteral feeding tubes is you can use pancreatitis, sodium bicarb. You can see the directions there. But the biggest thing is you do using those water fresh flushes as prevention. So we're all about prevention, right? We think about bowels, preventative stuff for bowels. We think about preventative stuff for tubes. So if you do a continuous... Um, feeding, then you want to make sure that you're flushing intermittently. But intermittent feeding, you want to do 30 mils before and after each feeding. Um, and that will help kind of keep things clear and out of the way, which is always a good idea. 
But you can use Coke. I don't know how many of you have you thought all of there's There's a million reasons you can use Coke. Some of them really fun. But my favorite one is if you take Mentos and a Coke, it can explode into a fountain with a two-liter bottle. And that sounds super fun. If you take Coke and ketchup and make it one-to-one, -one, pour it over pork chops, cook it, makes a great barbecue sauce. We could go on and on. These are not part of the speed dating the tips. tips but never end. I'm just saying. This is such a value-added session. <laughs> Meds and cooking. What can go wrong? Um, so you can look at your notes for the rest of those fun little experiments that you can do. Um, but another thing with tube feedings, you can, we would be remiss as pharmacists if we did not mention the fact that, that medications can be issues too. So when to separate them, making sure that you're looking for those interactions if they're on tube feedings. Um, you really have to be careful of what you're doing, especially with um, meds like phenytoin, um, warfarin. You've got to think, okay, how are we going to strategize this with the patient's feeding? And sometimes when we're in the palliative care setting and we're wrestling with the value of what uh, tube feeds will continue to add for this patient, and if they're able to eat even small amounts by mouth, and we say, and you know what, they're getting in the way of your medications. Um, and if this is a medication that we've deemed appropriate and still part of the goals of care, this can be part of the conversation and just avoid this whole, um, this whole mess. But just be sure to look at it. Speaking of phenytoin, being um, a troublemaker with enteral fe tube feedings, how many people routinely draw free phenytoin levels instead of total? So think about at your institution how this happens. At my institution, it's routinely all done free levels. But when you think about phenytoin, it's 90% bound to albumin. So if you get a phenytoin concentration of 15, total phenytoin of 15, and you look at what their albumin is, the therapeutic level of that 15, the free level is 1.5. Right? So it's about 10% of that total level is what your free level is. But depending on the albumin and how much it's bound, that can be a, a big variation. So it may not always um, be that the free level is what tells you what's actually happening. So you want a therapeutic level of one to two free, and that's where you get um, a more clear distinction of what the patient is at, whether they're toxic or not. So well, I just wanted to see here at the bottom. So that's the thing. But when you look here, the 90% said normal. The bottom part is the 80%. So if it's 80% bound and you still get that total level of 15 and it's only 80% bound, then you get, um, instead of getting a level that is um, the 1.5, the 10%, you'd get a 3, level of 3. And Which is like a that, total of 30, right? And remember that level is 1 to 2. So that would be times 10 would be 30. So that patient would be toxic. So another topic that is important is these oral chemo meds. So this is a big challenge in end of life, and we're often struggling with how to um, think about uh, covering these medications and transitioning to hospice. Sometimes they can be limitations because the hospice can't afford to pay for them. A big tip that we tend to use is really doing a deep dive with the patients and families about how much they're actually taking them. So when you looked at nine studies about adherence to these medications, at six months, the adherence was 69 to 100%. But if that patient is a 69% adherence patient, are they really getting the value of that medication? And that opens the door sometimes to the conversations. Um, so I think that's something that when you look um, at baseline even, you can tell before patients even start, 36% met criteria that they would pro likely not be able to adhere well to these medication schedules. And that's something that you can really use to your advantage in helping to weigh the benefit and burden of these medications. So some of the things to think about are um, the age, not being married, um, which is interesting because in the, um, some of the NCCN guidelines, there's data about um, marriage being a factor of a, a risk factor for diagnosis and prognosis. And there was a line in one of the NCCN guidelines that said, 
um, patients that are married has been equal to the effects of chemotherapy. And so I have a friend who had a recent, di recent diagnosis of non-smell cell lung cancer, and she's single. And I said, well, forget chemo. We'll just get you hitched before the weekend. And she's looking, and we're like, so that was how we entertained ourselves in the oncology visits. And she was like, well, what about that guy over there? I'm like, he looks better than chemo, so let's go ahead and go with that. That's a um, little fruit. So, hey, and we'll let's apply it to adherence, too. You never know how marriage will help you. And, uh, but I said, yeah, I think they should have evaluated the quality of the marriage. I don't know, but for another day. Um, so uh, another um, thing when you're thinking about um, how to like keep these medications and make sure we're using them well is the open container rule. So in Vegas, obviously, it's open container everywhere, right? But for Dabigatron, no. So when you look at um, Pradaxa, they need to be stored in the original container. So we're often encouraging patients, use your pillbox, stay organized, you have all these medications, not with this one. So a lot of times we're like really ambitious pharmacists or our pharmacy students will say, guess what, I got everything organized and look, it fits in this great little box. And you're like, take that back out um, because you um, cannot put it in a pillbox. It'll, it'll degrade. Um, you have to use um, it within 60 days too. So if it's something that they say, oh, I've been kind of keeping this around for a while. I just stopped using it. Maybe I should start it again. Make sure you look at that date. That would be an important thing to know. So we use dexamethasone all the time. And a lot of times we think about our patients having symptom clusters. So when you think about the symptom clusters of FAD, so fatigue, anorexia, and depression, um, and they looked at a study where four milligrams twice a day was given for 14 days, and um, they showed that there were actually fairly significant, clinically significant, meaningful changes shown for dexamethasone. Now, we know that. We see this in practice. We use dexamethasone for everything. We love it. But this is data that I think would be helpful, and we're always looking for things that kind of validate what we're doing, to share with your colleagues and explain why we're using dexamethasone. It was not found to be significant in the other two clusters, which had to do with more sleep, anxiety, drowsiness, um, and then dyspnea. Now, why do we use dex? So uh, glucocorticoids have a lot of anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressive properties. People get worried, right, about using dexamethasone. So when, a lot of times when we see a patient that has uh, bone meds and we're like, well, maybe we should add a little dexamethasone in here. And then people in my hospital setting always go, steroids, no, 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 no. And they're like, well, maybe we'll give a pulse. Maybe we'll give a taper. Now in hospice and palliative medicine, we say, we don't need to taper it. We can kind of like let that go and keep them on a dose and it might be beneficial. Um, but a lot of times that there might be on prednisone or something, and we usually switch them to dex or we prefer dex um, because the mineralocorticoid um, influences that salt and water balance and you get more retention. So we want to look there. Um, so that's why dex is a preferred option. When you look here at equivalent dosing, you'll see how it compares to, it's fairly low. We're not using a lot of dex here. So 4-BID um, is not like a significant amount. So that can help sometimes convince people of why we're not you know, doing anything <laughs> completely outrageous. But when you look here at the mineralocorticoid potency, um, that's one of the reasons why we choose, why we choose dex. It has no mineralocorticoid action. So one challenge here, and this is something that can kind of come up in practice, is sometimes people worry about patients that have wounds and giving them steroids, and what about wound healing? So there is some um, surgical literature that would say that complications are two to five times higher with used chronic steroids. Um, the challenge is that these, cha these studies are mostly uncontrolled, and a lot of them are retrospective. Um, so they were using about study doses of 20 milligrams of prednisone, which is about 3 milligrams of dexamethasone. Um, well, they were using twice that, so it would be 6 milligrams of dexamethasone. 
But when they showed animal studies, it didn't have a lot of effect um, on the tensile strait if it was more than three days after wound healing, um, the wounding. So when we're using dexamethasone, the wound's already there. Um, so that's why the surgical literature was using steroids right at that time of wounding or when the, the wound was being created. Um, so I think our data, um, we can be a little bit more confident that it's not having as much of an impact as what you see here in the surgical literature. Unless you're using higher doses, then that, I think that puts a, a little bit of a caveat. Um, so moving forward and talking about skin, let's slap a patch on it, right? So uh, transdermal fentanyl patches are all over the place, and patients that are considered opioid tolerant. Now remember, this is a pretty significant warning that we need to be careful of. You see patients use, put on transdermal fentanyl all the time as opioid naive um, or when they're not meeting those qualifications, and I think we're in deep water there. Um, so we're always on the lookout when people are placing patches to look at what they're using. They have to be on a week or longer of 60 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents each day. So we have a lot of patients that come in and they say, but look how much opioid they're using. Surely they can tolerate you know, a 12 mic patch or a 25 mic patch. And you're like, no, 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 they have not earned their patch yet. They gotta get up to that one week. Um, but you can use buprenorphine, transdermal, and opioid new patients if you're using the five microgram patch. When you um, think about that patch and you say, okay, we're gonna put the heat on it a little bit more, patients actually um, notice that sometimes when they put heating pads or they heat those patches up, they get a little bit more bang for your buck. Um, but when you, in the hospital, see patients that have um, kind of opioid overdose, I've seen patients that have ended up in the unit and they say, gosh, they, I don't know what happened to them last night. They got, you know, had a rapid response called and they spiked a fever. So a lot of times you look at that fever and you think they had a fentanyl patch on, they got increased absorption, right? Anything topical, you get increased absorption when you heat things up. So um, the other thing that they've shown in this study is that patients that had strenuous exertion and increased their core body temperature, they also showed a difference. Um, so I think that's something to just watch out for and be careful of. As far as the outside heat, oh, I think it's more about the core body temperature. So it would depend on whether they're increasing that. Yeah, I mean, I think you gotta watch out for that. I mean, I, I think you'd monitor that patient. You'd there have, have been deaths them. reported from wearing a transdermal fentanyl patch on your back and heating your car seats. Yeah, yeah. So you it, it's a real thing. Um, so a couple of tips about ventilator withdrawals, yeah. If the act of the exercise, I don't know how much heat that would generate. I guess it depends on how good of an exerciser you are. Me, it wouldn't be any big deal, you know. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. But if, then you would have them track that. I mean, if they're groggy after that, then you got to get them off yeah. that. Yeah. Heating so, pads, very dangerous too. A couple tips on ventilator withdrawals is just if they're on propofol, you want to make sure to get that off. And we usually do a half an hour, 50% down. Um, and then we always make sure to say, use opioids first for shortness of breath, follow up with benzos. Benzos are not gonna treat your shortness of breath. Um, and then as far as redosing, um, this is an important thing that you can redose after the onset. So people sometimes are afraid to say, okay, let's repeat the IV dose. We say, we're gonna follow your lead and give you small doses, and we're gonna redose you frequently until we know what you need after a ventilator withdrawal. 
Um, a lot of people think, okay, we're going to do a ventilator withdrawal. Let's slap a scope patch on that patient. And you say, no, 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 because it does not peak for 24 hours on average. And it still sticks around after you remove it. So just be careful. A lot of people do not realize it takes a while for those things to come, um, patches to kick in. Bedside delivery. How many people in the hospital have bedside delivery of medications now? It's a growing service. This is the tip for that. Be careful because we've had several incidents, especially with our palliative population, where they bring them up, the patient's abtunded, they're not alert, they stick those, that bag of beds on their bedside table and then off they go. It's a pharmacy tech delivering it. And when that tech delivers it, sign off it's been delivered, patient's not counseled, off they go. We've had patients go home with it from an advanced heart failure admission, and then they get home, they open the bag, there's a script still in it because the tech can't open the bag, and it's for their diuretic. It was not filled. They were out of it. So just be careful bedside delivery, especially if there's controlled substances that are left on the bedside table, and there's lots of people in and out of those rooms getting trays and whatnot. So just figure out how your system works and make sure you anticipate some of those loopholes because... Um, we've seen them in practice, and it's been uh, challenging. Prescription drug monitoring, this is no place. You guys know this. It's all over, um, and we're hoping for, for it to grow. Except for Missouri. Goodness gracious. D.C., I'm proud to say, is finally getting there. So that was one hole in the map that's being filled. Um, and then we're moving on. Hit me. So even Pepsid AC can't stop my heart from burning for you. That's How about propranolol is red, digoxin is blue. My heart skips a beat when I see you. Oh, that's so sweet. Girl, you must be norepinephrine because you make my heart race. You have an inhaler. You just took my breath away. <laughs> Look how many pharmacists they'll pick up with I these. tell you, pharmacists are so cool. So let's talk about the diabetes drugs. Are they big dogs? Are the new ones big dogs? Well, you know, I think this is a really telling chart. It looks at what is the A1C lowering capacity of the new drugs. So when you look at the dipeptidopeptidase inhibitors, this is the Genuvia group of drugs, it's only really 0.5 to 1. If you look at the SGLT2 inhibitors, again, about 0.5 to 1. And these drugs are about $300 a month. So when I look at my end-of-life patients, I'm rapidly interested in how poorly we manage diabetes at the end of life. We do a terrible job. If you look at every one-point reduction or increase in the A1C, that represents a change in the blood glucose by about 28 or 20 29 milligrams per deciliter. So then when you go to something like this, if you look at the ones in red, you're only seeing a 0.5 to 1 reduction in the A1C, which is about, and generally is closer to the 0.5, about a 15 milligram per deciliter decrease in the blood sugar. So if someone has a serious illness, an advanced illness, do, are you really going to get worked up about the blood sugar being 15 points higher on average? I'm not. I say, let's give the dying diabetic a donut is what I say. Um, I think we do have to be mindful. Every day we wake up and hear a new warning about the diabetes drugs. The DPP-4 inhibitors can cause permanent uh, persistent joint pain. It occurs from one day to one year and usually resolves in the month after starting therapy. The SGLT2 inhibitors, which are very cool mechanistically, they're warning of ketoacidosis and now even urosepsis. Uh, again, canagliflozin, I mean, the mechanism is very cool how it prevents the reabsorption of glucose from the proximal tubule. Um, increased risk of bone fracture. Just falling from a standing height increases the risk of having a fracture. That can happen as soon as 12 weeks, and there, I, I would imagine it's going to be a class effect. I love this article that was recommendations on treating diabetics at the end of life. Recommendation number one is when you come into hospice, you should have a new discussion of the goals of care. That's a hard conversation to have because the family is really invested in checking the sugar four times a day. And we have to say, you know, 
it's a tough conversation. We could talk for an hour about this. I like to say, you know, all that hard work you have put into managing your diabetes for all these years, checking your sugar, adjusting your insulin and your medications, watching your diet. The good news is that tight control earlier in disease will pay off for years into the future. And what's left unsaid is you don't have years of future left. Uh, so it's a hard conversation to have. Um, let's just make sure we keep them asymptomatic. So look at what's the blood sugar that makes them symptomatic. And I would argue that could be as high as 250 or 300. So again, I don't, I don't care about your A1C if you're terminally ill. And I say let's keep the blood sugar between 140 and about 250 or maybe even 300. Very important. Um, and the ni nice, good news here now is HEDIS has excluded hospice patients when they're looking at what percentage of physicians are monitoring the A1C. So for medication management and advanced illness, I have come up with this snappy little process that really is like a two-hour presentation, but I will spare you, called Medication Management 1, 2, 3, ABC. Yes, I shamelessly stole this from the Jackson 5. I just flipped it. So there you go. So what is the one, two, three? I think the first step is when nurses do a medication history, which God bless them, that could take forever right there. Not only collecting the medications and making sure you have the right list, figuring out why the patient is on every medication. Don't just write digits of heart pill. Why is this patient on the dig? Number two, how is the patient using it relative to how it was ordered? And if they're using it differently, it may be appropriate, it may not. Number three, thank you, Dr. Phil. How's it working for you? And then we can look at different medica medications and put them in different categories. If it's preventative drug therapy, do you still need it? I mean, we have good data showing statin within an, a year, within a year of death, stopping it, patients actually lived a little longer. It was not statistically significant, but basically you don't need it anymore. Drugs that slow disease progression like ALS, there's good data out of Austria showing 18 months post-diagnosis, if you're still on Riluzole, it actually hastens your death. Not a good look. The Alzheimer's disease, if you are appropriate for hospice under that diagnosis, these medications are not helpful and I believe, in fact, harmful. Then we have drugs for pain and symptom management. Stopping those would likely not be in the patient's best interest. And I always question replacement therapy. We have patients on three kinds of calcium and vitamin D, B12, B6, uh, folic acid, preserve vision. I mean, there are so many things that really are not that useful. Then you look at the, all this information, the ABC. What are the adverse effects? Are the patients having adverse effects? And given this information, the therapeutic goal, are they meeting the goal? Are they having side effects? You really consider the benefits and burdens of drug therapy. Based on that, you have to have some serious conversations about stopping medications with the prescriber, with the hospice medical director, with the patient and the family, and always doing education with return demonstration. Drug interactions, well, we all know what the heck these are. Um, so obviously, this slide is even out of date now. So officials from 41 states petitioned the FDA for this black box warning on all opioids and benzos, and we do treat the opioids and benzos as mother's milk in hospice and palliative care. So uh, we just tap dance on the edge. I did a talk at the academy meeting called Let's Order Lunch Off the Beers List because it's like, hello, welcome to hospice. Let's give you every dangerous drug on the list. Uh, so what can I say? We laugh in the face of danger. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and of course, this did come to fruition. Um, what, but how do you have those conversations? You know, the FDA busts a move, but we do this all the time in end-of-life care. So here's a sample conversation. The nurse to the patient and family member. I just spoke with the hospice doc, and she gave me orders to start a pain medication called morphine. I know you've been anxious about all that's going on, so Dr. Smith also gave me an order for lorazepam, also known as Ativan, to help with those feelings. You can use the lorazepam up to three times a day as needed. Family member to nurse. Whoa, Nellie, I just read about the Washington Post about 41 officials petitioning the FDA to put warnings on these drugs. And then the FDA did it and made it a black box warning. They're worried that people are going to die. What are you trying to pull here? 
the nurse to the patient and the family member. Yes, I read those as well. Their concerns are valid, but those are fatalities in cases where people use those drugs differently than intended by their doctor, or they got the meds from a family or friend member, friend or family member, uh, or from different doctors, took more than they were supposed to, or mix it with alcohol. Who can say why people do things that cause them harm? Often it's for the abuse potential. That is not why we're recommending it and not for your purpose here. So we do have to do a lot of discussion and education. This is one of my favorite acronyms. Remember the drug interactions with warfarin, the FAB4. F-A-B, F for four. Fluconazole, amiodarone, Bactrim, and Flagyl. If you can remember those four, they're gonna inhibit the metabolism of warfarin and your INR will go up within 24 hours pretty darn predictably. So this is just explaining this. Uh, do I empirically reduce the warfarin dose? Um, I don't know. It would depend on how high the INR is and what's the indication for the patient. This is one that really makes me kind of crazy in hospice and end-of-life care, is when patients have primary metastatic disease to the brain, prescribers are very likely to prescribe an anticonvulsant as prophylactic therapy. But the American Academy of Neurologists has said, you know, no, you shouldn't do that. If they're gonna seize, they're probably gonna seize through whatever you selected. So here's a quote that multiple studies have demonstrated no clear benefit from prophylactic anti-epileptic drug therapy for patients who have CNS tumors and no prior history of seizures, therefore initiating anti-epileptic drug prophylaxis is not recommended, and if a patient comes into our program on one of these drugs, it should be tapered and discontinued. But we do get orders for lorazepam. Sometimes we'll, if we do need an anticonvulsant and they need an oral solution, we'll use the lorazepam and tensol. And then we always get an order for, if anybody has a seizure, lorazepam one milligram or two milligrams every five minutes up to four doses to try and break the seizure. So who's familiar with the fast facts? The fast facts are awesome. Yeah, they're wonderful. What, they're, what if instead of a tumor, it's uh, like post-cranial surgery of some type? I don't know. Post-cranial surgery, how likely are they to have a seizure? I don't know. I, I see lots of patients that come in, they've been Yeah. Uh, you know, I think if it's for prophylaxis, I would entertain maybe a slow taper down and maybe just getting the lorazepam order in place for if and when. Well, then that's important too. If it's slowing down the disease process, that's another consideration. The only data we have is on cancer. Do like the fast facts, just want to point out they have been transferred to the website for the Palliative Care Network of Wisconsin. That's their website there. Um, here's two that they came out recently on um, patients with a history of substance abuse. This is really an awesome website. So you really should be checking. You can sign up to be on their listserv, and they notify you when a new one comes out. Here's something about Levorfinol, which I was surprised to see. It's, it's come back on the market, which is good news, and it's not as expensive as you would think. So I think we have a lot to learn from Levorfinol. It's kind of like methadone in a lot of different ways. And these fast facts are great for team huddles, for teaching. Yeah, for students great and residents. Um, you know, I'm, uh, some apps I like, some I don't. I don't like apps for opioid conversions, but I do like a good app that tells you how much do drugs cost. So here's my favorite in the world. It's called GoodRx.com. You can get it on your computer. You can get it on your phone or your mini. Love, love, love this one. So for example, here I typed in oxycodone ER. Well, there is no generic. So if somebody's on Oxycontin 40Q12, it, asks, it does your GPS and says, you know, GoodRx would like to know where you are right now. So when I, I was preparing for a talk yesterday and the new um, methyl naltrexone oral just came out. So I went to GoodRx to see if they had a price and it wasn't 
wasn't in their database, yes. But it said, well, we see you're not home in Annapolis, Maryland. Can we switch to where you are now? Because what it's trying, is it made for patients to say, okay, looking at all the pharmacies around me, how much would this be? So for example, wherever I was at the time, there was a Sam's Club 1.7 miles away where this medication would cost me $531. And if you scroll all the way down, it'll say, well, if you don't have a coupon, here's what it costs you. So I have found this very useful when I'm talking mm -hmm. to people about drug therapy and how much it costs. Um, and here's just another example. Uh, speaking of apps, you all have to download the Cracker Barrel app because the solitaire is awesome. <laughs> so These are important said about that. It was, an important, it was a really awesome app. Just slide it in there. More pickup lines. I'm not sure what my creatinine clearance is, but I just can't get you out of my system. I'm like acetaminophen. I'll make sure all your pains go away when we're together. Oh, baby. Very palliative. I think you were suffering from a lack of vitamin B. <laughs> Is it just me or is it an interaction between us? That's so good for pharmacists. We love that. Is your name Fleckenide? Because you just made my heart skip a beat. <laughs> I think it's left. Okay. Um, the beers criteria, just a quick update. They updated PPIs for eight weeks. Thank goodness, without justification, right? We're always looking for them. They stay on forever. Here's a good reference for deprescribing PPIs. It's deprescribing.org. They have other ones that they're looking at. It's just a really great sheet to kind of take back to your team that takes you through the decision tree of how to deprescribe and things, uh, criteria of when to think about deprescribing PPIs, most of the time for us, actually, um, if they don't have PUED or another um, risk factor. Here's the back of it just as a good reference sheet. Um, so it's a good thing to kind of print out and take back to your team as a awesome guide. Awesome website, deprescribing.org. Comes mm -hmm. out of Canada, awesome. Yeah, and they're looking at other classes too. So one of the things that they looked at is said, okay, which drug classes, um, they did an a expert panel to say, what drug classes do you guys think should be guidelines developed for deprescribing? And you look here, this was before the statin trial came out, that he gave us a little bit more guidance on that. But atypical antipsychotics, benzos, and proton pump inhibitors were up there. They worked on that one first. Um, but in the meantime, I think this is a, a great article. This is a must-have if you're in the palliative world, because as pharmacists in palliative care, we're often re recommending deprescribing just as much as prescribing or recommending medications. Um, so here's an algorithm that thinks about, like, you know what, if, if these are the times when you think about deprescribing, um, is there a new symptom, sign or symptom that says this could be an ADR from another drug that they're taking? That cascade of prescribing can lead to a lot of side effects that are treated with another medication, and things just exponentially grow from there. Um, if they're advanced disease with full dependence, maybe we need to reevaluate re the goals of care and think about what's really um, bringing this patient um, benefit right now when the equation changes. Um, High-risk drug com combinations always take a close look at those, of course. Um, and then we talked about the pre preventative meds, always taking a look at those. Methadone messes. So we spent a long time this morning talking about methadone, almost to the fact, the detriment of our marijuana friends. Oh, my God, what were we thinking? I know. So we know methadone gets in some messy situation. We've talked about a lot of them, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but these are the things that you get stuck in with methadone that are a little messy. So when you have methadone use and they've, um, we don't know how much they've been using, they've been using it on the street to kind of stay out of withdrawal, um, that's a mess. Um, if you know they've been using methadone but they haven't been on it for a couple of days, that's a mess too. These are all messes. So just a reminder, you know, while patients are in the hospital, this is still something that prescribers in our hospital need to be reassured that you can continue the methadone indefinitely while they're in the hospital. You can't give it to them when they leave, um, but you can give it to them to maintain them um, if it's a, a, methadone, a patient in a methadone program. Um, so one thing we're thinking about is we're saying, okay, well, are they in pain? 
if they have a history of substance abuse and you're worried about them going to withdrawal and they're in pain, um, then it's a little bit of a challenge um, thinking about buprenorphine. I know some people have, it's very controversial. Can buprenorphine really hang with the big dogs with methadone? I don't know. Um, is there a ceiling effect of buprenorphine? Typically, we go with methadone when we need to think about a patient that has both substance abuse and they're in pain. Um, especially if there's no immediate plans for dispo, then that's what we think about um, being a good option. So here are some of the things we talked about this this morning. So hopefully you guys were at that talk and you know exactly what to do as far as converting. So I'm going to blow right by that one because that's what we get. Here's where things get dicey too. You have a patient that you know went to surgery. They've been off it a few days. We had a patient come into the hospital, and um, we were called for the palliative team saying this patient's delirious. He's going batty. He's been. We can't get him in the ICU out of the ICU. He's so agitated. We're giving 10 milligrams of Haldol six times a day, and they're giving benzo doses that would knock over anyone in this room. And we come up and we start talking to his family and think, oh, he was actually on methadone. 120 a day before he came in and they unceremoniously ripped it right off of him because he came in with acute mental status changes because of his respiratory condition now that he's vented. So he's stuck on this vent going crazy in there because he's withdrawing. This was five or six days later that they had gotten to this Haldol concoction. So then we had to go back and say, okay, now what do we do? So this guy that we're talking about did not have recent use because we could have just used his 120, right? He had been off methadone for more than one or two days because if he had been off one or two days, we would have, could have given him 75% of his dose. He was off methadone for more than three days, so we replaced it with 50% of his dose. Guess what happened the very next day? Totally chilled out. We said, get him off that Haldol dose. Let's step him off of these benzos. He hadn't gotten a He wasn't at the point where we need to um, wean him, but we did wean him a, little, a short taper. Um, and we put him back 160 total daily dose of his methadone, and he was out of the ICU after the weekend. It was amazing. And they're like, wow. So um, we split the methadone doses when we do that inpatient just to kind of cover the day. Um, and also it, it is nice because if you have to hold a dose, if they get sedated when you're not quite sure what they need in the hospital, it gives you flexibility. So if they get sedated, you don't have to do the next dose and can kind of use it to titrate a little bit. Um, and if they off methadone for more than five days, then you go back to opioid naive dosing and then you can kind of fill in the gaps with their short acting. So when you think about opioid replacement and they don't have pain and you can use buprenorphine um, a little bit more confidently, it's a partial agonist. So you know that it will knock off if you have other opioids on board because it binds so tightly to that new receptor. So you got to be careful if they have a tolerance that's higher than 80 milligrams of morphine equivalents a day, then you would worry about that patient having withdrawal symptoms. Um, and that goes back to the methadone talk, the patient that I had when they called in and said, oh, just step him down over the next couple weeks to about 80 milligrams of morphine equivalents, but he was having torsades, and you're like, no more stepping. Like, <laughs> withdrawal is better than uh, sudden death. Um, but then this is kind of what you're thinking as far as um, getting someone down to this, and then they can convert over to buprenorphine a little more reliably. When you're looking at opioid withdrawal, this is what we're monitoring for. So if you have to do one of those higher wire conversions and you're monitoring for opioid withdrawal, this is a good thing to think about the cows and the sows. So subjective opioid withdrawal scale, and that's the patient-based version where you're asking the patient what they're experiencing, or the clinical opioid withdrawal scale, and that's more of a clinical inventory of did the patient yawn how much in the last um, assessment, are they sweating, um, they actually have measurements for each of these elements that the clinician would do, not the patient. But these are the things you'd talk about and have the nurse um, be monitoring with you. 
Here's that source we talked about during the methadone, the credible meds for QT prolonging drugs. We're often worried about this in the hospital when we start dancing around all these palliative drugs that prolong the QT. Um, they keep it updated, so they take your email address and then they can update you um, as they update their data. Speaking of QT, we think about Celexa. So that safety risk saying over 40 milligrams, you gotta watch out, but 20 milligrams for patients that are over 60 years of age, which are a lot of our patients. Um, as well as those with hepatic impairment or more poor metabolizers. So when you look at the data here, you can see that 60 milligram dose led to it almost 19 cha uh, QTC, change in the QTC milliseconds. Um, I would say that's probably clinically significant, right? We'd worry about that. But what about our BFF Haldol? We talked about this and I alluded to this data, but when they looked at the dosage range that supported this QT prolongation change of seven to 15 milliseconds, that was from using four to 15 milligrams a day of Haldol. So when you think about what our doses are, 0.5 TID, 0.5 VID, you're using a fraction of that, a quarter of that. So it is dose dependent. So if you do a quarter of seven milliseconds, I think we can fly with 1.5 or two millisecond changes in the QT, right? That's not clinically significant. So that's something that you can think about. We are not using psych doses here. Um, so last but not least is our benefit to statins. Um, time to benefit here. When you look at there's an absolute risk reduction of 3% um, as you look over the two to five years. Let's see what we're looking at here when people stop them. People stop statins quite frequently because of the side effects. These are not like a, a free ride here as far as why people would um, not tolerate it or stop, the, stop it on their own. But when they looked at discontinuing patients, and um, roughly half the patients discontinued, half the patients continued, and you can see here the death within 60 days, um, we're, these are not a big risk as far as discontinuing statins. I think this data helps us feel a little bit more confident in what we see in clinical practice and um, letting this go. Um, survival estimates here, when they looked at those patients and followed them over time, when you see here at almost a year's worth of data, the median days to death here were 190 versus 229. Um, it did not reach statistical significance here. Um, but when you look at cardiovascular events in those populations, 13 cardiovascular events happened in the discontinuation group, 11 happened in the continuation group. So it was 6.3% of patients overall, which I think is um, reasonable. Patient reported outcomes, you can see most of them favor discontinuation. Um, and when you look at the cost, and you look at that could be seven, $716 per patient, I would say we need to think about that and weigh that carefully when we look at pharmacoeconomics. What about this one? I need an antibiotic because my love for you burns stronger than my UTI. Oh my. <laughs> now we're really getting to the end of oh, things here. Oh, that's huh? revolting. I need an emodium because I can't hold in my love for you. <laughs> How about this one? You breathe oxygen. We have so much in common. Doesn't take much. You look familiar. Do we have class together? I could have sworn we had chemistry. <laughs> this is getting weird. You make my dopamine levels all silly. Of course. <laughs> all right, we're coming down the home stretch. This little tip I got from when we had a teacup Yorkie and she weighed two pounds at her highest, and she had hypoplastic kidneys, and she had a liver shunt. So no blood went to her liver pretty much, so she made no glycogen. So she would bottom out her sugar, so I was desperate to keep her alive. They said she would die within six months. She lived over two years. She died in my arms at one in the morning, but enough oh. about that. Um, I came up, I found this night bite bar. So it's for people who bottom out their sugar in the middle of the night.
strength. So it has three glucose sources. The sucrose, which kicks in right away. It's converted to glucose quickly. Protein, which takes about two and a half to five hours to convert to glucose. And uncooked cornstarch, which takes about six hours or more. So if you have a patient for some reason bottoming out their sugar in the middle of the night, you might want to recommend a night bite bar. Just a plea for drug names that are so confusing. Which is which here? Uh, so Berlinta is Ticagrelor, Brintilex is Vortioxetine. So I'm sure you have heard, I mean, you've certainly heard about the EpiPen and all these drugs where the prices have gone up. Well, those of us who do hospice and palliative care, we love chlorpromazine. We have people who get delirious and combative. They're trying to take a swing at the staff. We just need to chill them out a little bit so we would pick chlorpromazine instead of Thorazine. But look what the price hike. It went up like 1,000%. 1100%, just crazy. That's so what do we do instead? We still do like Haldol for nausea. It works quite well for nausea, delirium, and hiccups. But if the patient is combative and restless and the Haldol is not cutting it, now we've had to use phenobarbital, which is a real shame. Uh, I don't feel very much like poo today, said Pooh. There, there, said Piglet. I'll bring you some tea and honey until you do. So tea and honey apparently is the, the answer to everything. <laughs> uh, but this is a cough review showing that honey for a cough is not a bad deal. I mean, when you look at our cough products, I mean, dextromethorphan maybe will work. Tessalon pearls, not so much, but they are a lot of fun to play marbles with after the patient dies. But think about honey. <laughs> New drugs of abuse. This is really important, and we're seeing this more and more. Pregabalin and gabapentin have become very popular drugs of abuse uh, because of the euphoric and the sedative effect, particularly if you combine it with an opioid. The misuse of gabapentin is increased by 90%, and it's approximated that 20% of people in gabapentin are abusing it. And there's a reference for you, and I love this quote, I'm not as thick as you stoned I am. Yeah, okay. We should have used that in our last we talk. We should have used it in our last talk. So, you know, I question, what is this animal? Somebody had to tell me it's a billy goat, but boy, you know what a a good bowel movement feels like, right? Uh, this is just, uh, I gave a whole talk yesterday on the constipation sensation, but you know, I think it's important to recognize that the newer prescription valve products are quite expensive. So I do agree with the consensus guidelines that we should continue using the non-prescription, uh, Senna, I don't like docusate so much, polyethylene glycol, you know, they're very inexpensive. We don't have number needed to treat because we have basically no data on these old products. But the little bit of data we do have shows that for opium-induced constipation, they work about 50% of the time, which is pretty good odds, all things considered. But, you know, linoclotide is not indicated for OIC, but, you know, when you look at a number needed to treat, uh, we have to give a bunch of people, six to ten people, the drug at almost $300 a month for one person to have two spontaneous bowel movements a week as compared to placebo. So that one bowel movement just cost you 35 bucks. If you look at things like lubiprostone, amatiza, now we need to treat 12 people. And you only get an extra 0.9 bowel movement a week. I hate when I have a 0.9 bowel movement. How about you? <laughs> it is so unfulfilling. I want a whole bowel movement. Uh, but that bowel movement costs you $100. So I better hear freaking angels sing for that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then it goes on from there. Methylnaltrexone, this is data from the subcutaneous formulation. I am hearing crazy things about the oral. I'm hearing anywhere from $15 to $45 a day. I don't know what the actual price will be. It'll be interesting to see. And naloxagol, the number that you treat is about eight. So it's about $300 a month. So you've got to treat eight people at $300 a month to have an extra half to one spontaneous bowel movement a week. So, you know, but I do have to say that the FDA 
FDA guidance that what they qualified as a positive success was very prescriptive. They had, it was very certain, specific on who could qualify, and they had to have three or more spontaneous bowel movements a week. It had to be at least one grid in the baseline with less than 25% had straining, and it had to be a Tuesday with the wind blowing from the east while you're standing on one foot. It was really prescriptive. So even though this data looks a little alarming, like numbers needed to treat of 8 and 10 and 12, sometimes a smidge less than that finish line is good enough. Sometimes good enough is good enough, but they are expensive, so pick your battles carefully. So obviously, approach to constipation, I think we all know this. Uh, I do love the Bristol stool chart, and if you weren't in the constipation talk, you need to take a look at this, because uh, you will think of me tomorrow morning when you have your morning bowel movement, and you will rate it before you give it a burial at sea. Type one is the little acorn bowel movements that you finally, after considerable labor, squeeze out. Type two is the little lumps are together, but they're not happy about it. Type three is they're together, but there's like a crack in it. Type four is the holy land, a nice, smooth, snake-like bowel movement that just kind of falls out, and wow, that was awesome. And then it starts to get a little fluffy, Five, six, seven, you're in the splash zone. Not a good look. My resident last year said she was going to make me a Bristol stool chart cake. This is I said, not if good. you do, you are not getting your residency certificate. <laughs> so thankfully, she spared me the cake for my birthday. The good side is it was chocolate. It was chocolate, but still, even for me. All right, here we have fry breath. What's with that? So actually, we have found, this is uh, data from the UK, showing that in addition to hepatic biotransformation and eliminating in the stool and the urine, fentanyl, to a fairly significant extent, is ex ex eliminated unchanged by the lungs. So the author said, this is a potential risk to the people who are working in the OR. And you know, we use IV fentanyl quite a bit in our inpatient hospice unit. Oh, look, here's one of our nurses now. So just be careful with that. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of my six-pack, which has nothing to do with beer or abdominal muscles. I don't drink. I especially don't like beer. But it's the high-concentrate intensols. So morphine and oxy 20 to 1, although we don't use the oxy because the price went up to over $300 for one ounce. It's liquid gold now. The methadone 10 to 1 and Haldol, lorazepam, and Dex. You know, if you had to practice hospice and palliative care and only could take six drugs, there's your six-pack right there. So here's, here, let's play Jeopardy. Why, yes, I do look good in orange. Why do you ask? Because if you started an IV infusion of morphine at two milligrams in an hour and ordered titrate to comfort, the consequences may beg the question how you look in orange. This is happening because patients have this annoying habit of waking up at three in the morning dead because people, nurses, often will increase it every half an hour in their enthusiasm to get the patient comfortable. But you're doing some really severe dose stacking and it's not a good look. So if you look at the data, what's the half-life of morphine? In the general population, it's about two to three hours. Peds could be anywhere from two to nine. Liver impairment, eight or more hours. So if you look at this, the half-life, if you look at how many half-lives, after one half-life, you're 50% of the way there. So with a two-hour half-life, that would be two hours. With an eight-hour half-life, that would take you eight hours. If it takes five half-lives to pretty much get to steady state, which minimally is 10 hours, or it could be as long as 40 hours. So this is just a suggestion from something I found online. I had a better to write that order. Uh, but I think in my world, if you at least say after three half-lives, you're almost 90% of the way to steady state, which works for me. So for the continuous infusion, I would not increase it. In, this is being aggressive before 8 to 12 hours. I actually would rather be more conservative and say 12 to preferably 24 hours. You can adjust that bolus, though, every hour as you need to. Here's an awesome tip. I've only used it maybe twice in my whole career, but it's a pretty awesome tip. <clears throat> JR is a 48-year-old man admitted to hospice with non-small cell lung cancer. 
His prognosis is about three months. He has a history of schizophrenia that's been very difficult to manage. The only antipsychotic agent that seemed to provide an acceptable response is clozapine. He's too weak to go to his PCP's office for blood draws because of the risk of neutropenia, and he is one tough stick. What's your best option? Who wants to A, insert a central line for blood draws on this hospice patient? Okay. Who wants to switch for clozapine to a different antipsychotic knowing the response will not be nearly as good? Or C, you want to call a darn good-looking pharmacist who has the answer to your prayers. Okay, that would be me. Here's the answer. You go to the clozapine REMS, which is clozapinerems.com. You click on the top where it says resources. Then you click on program materials, and you select the REMS ANC lab monitoring form. And look in the bottom right-hand corner, and what you see is here, if a patient is a hospice patient, it says for hospice patients, i.e. terminally ill patients with an estimated life expectancy of six months or less, the prescriber may reduce the ANC monitoring frequency to once every six months after a discussion with the patient and his or her caregiver. If you want to change the monitoring to once every six months, check here and sign it. This is a hospice patient. I feel lucky. Let's rock and roll. That has been an awesome tip. So we might not be Thelma and Louise, but uh, we hope you have enjoyed our crazy <laughs> journey with speed dating. <laughs>